Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. You've probably just been listening to uh, Reciprocity Radio, hosted by Amanda McLeod. And uh, that show that just is prior to the Truth to Power show tells the story of how we eat, cook, and share meals and recipes. Now they cross Christian tables, but across time, distance, and generations. It's so interesting to think about food and what we consume and the process of cooking can follow recipe, but it's kind of performance or sensory experience that connects everyone who has previously prepared the same dish. So in some ways, Truth to Power show is about creativity and the ways in which we communicate with each other through creativity, through writing, through, the, through film, through any kind of art, and how we are able to express our truth through that. So um, as you've seen, for those of you who have been listening to the show regularly, you know that we've been interviewing, I've been interviewing um, various uh, writers and filmmakers, sometimes people who are um, not particularly in that box of writing and filmmaking, but still in the creative field or have some kind of connection to the creative field. So today's interview is going to be with uh, W. Lance Hunt, who is a writer of A Perfect Blindness. And uh, he earned uh, two bachelor's degrees from Ohio State University. He co-founded the Rudely Elegant Theater in Chicago and helped produce an Emmy Award-winning film. After living in Mexico City, he moved to New York City, where he earned a Master's of Arts in English from CCNY. Hunt lives as a freelance writer and editor and lives in Brooklyn with his wife and son. So I'm excited to, to have this interview. And I'm going to be doing a reading right after the interview. So please stay tuned for the full interview. And right now we're going to be listening to some music that uh, helped from the, the playlist that Lance Hunt had created for that inspired his work, A Perfect Blindness. And the first song we're going to be listening to is um, The Boomtown Rats, Diamond Smiles. So please enjoy. And then we're going to be going to our interview uh, in just a moment. Thank you. Traffic's wild tonight Diamond smiles her cocktail smile Tonight she's in heavy disguise She looks at her wrist to clock the passing time Weather smile tonight She wonders will they notice her eyes She wonders will her glamour survive And can they see she's going down a third time Everybody tries It's Dale Carnegie gone wild But Barbara Cartman's child Logical perfected The motionless line And in the low voltage noise Diamond seems so sure and so Cake, jumped out too soon by mistake. 
All right, so welcome to the Truth to Power show. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm here with Lance Hunt, uh, author of A Perfect Blindness, and we're going to be talking about his journey to becoming a writer, uh, the writing life, uh, self-publishing, and his creative process. So uh, welcome, Lance. Thank you. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Good, good. So why don't we start off with a little bit of information on to give the, the listeners a little information about your book, A Perfect Blindness. Um, so this is from the back cover. It's uh, 1988, and Chicago is the center of the electro-industrial music scene. For best friends, J- Jonathan and Scott, the city holds everything they need to finally succeed with the band, plenty of venues, and a music-hungry audience. When a friend offers them an entire floor of an abandoned factory to live and rehearse in, the musicians see a way to break free from their years of failure. To secure the opportunity, they must move immediately, leaving everything and everyone behind in Ohio, including Jonathan's lover, Amy, the woman who saved him from his own self-destruction. So why don't we start off with, uh, so now I understand that you, you've never written a band. How do you make music and the music scene feel real? I was a roadie for a number of years, so I was the one who got the equipment on the stage, so I knew that end of it. I ended up taking over running lights and sound for a band. I then went on to do lights and sound for live theater. Mm -hmm. Then I went into uh, post-production, production production video and film production, post-production, did music videos as well as produced some music, helped record it. So I did everything except for play the instrument. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You got a good perspective, like an outside perspective, perhaps, on the music life and musicians. Yeah. 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 So they say, uh, right when you know is something everyone hears. Uh, how'd you know, how'd you use what you knew from these experiences in the book? I tried to put myself in the position of someone trying to make it as a musician. I knew people, I tried to know, uh, I knew a lot of people who were trying to make it in the theater, who were trying to write books, uh, singing careers, etc. So I said, you know what? Let's pretend I'm in a band. I'm going to use everything I know to make it as authentic as possible. I write. Well, they're songwriters. I give readings. Well, they perform. Okay, I can make it work. Yeah, making it relatable and relatable to your own experience is the thing I'm getting from that. It's good. Yeah. It's good. So now the the um, book is set in Chicago. Um, do you, right? It was mostly set in Chicago, or most of it is in Chicago. Mostly in Chicago. Uh, okay, there right. are a few scenes from Columbus, Ohio. Mm. That's some of the only stuff that's actually autobiographical. Yes, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Oh yeah. I did move to Chicago in 1988. <laughs> Very good. I went to these clubs and represented in there. That is also true which is why it's set in those places, because I knew them well, and I wanted to sort of preserve them. So how did you find the balance between, like, recognizable bars and clubs or finding, did you, how did you do that? Like, you, um, will people recognize the bars, clubs, and music venues features, or are they more obscure? Almost all of them are exactly, are exact representations. I tried to make it an homage, in a way, of a moment in time. And the people who have read the book, who are familiar with it, were like, yeah, mm. this is exactly the way I remembered it. I invented a couple of places because I just needed to have them there. Fine. 
they're recognizable as a bar. Everything <laughs> happens the way you would expect it to. But the places that are real, many of which have one burned down, one lost lease, another moved, and they've changed the names. But they're all authentic from the time I was there. Good, good. So, um, you know, I understand some of the thoughts and the dialogue of the characters are, are very influenced by lyrics. They're very lyric-like. You know, how much of that do you feel, you do, were you very intentional about that, making the lyrics very, making the passages very lyric-like or music-like? Oddly, no. It just happened. I would find myself writing a, a sentence, and suddenly an entire lyric line from a song would just come off my fingertips. Yeah. And there it would be, and I'm like, I'm leaving it. A couple of times I got them slightly wrong, I misremembered them. <laughs> Which always makes it kind of fun. Like, I know, I've, I know this song. I'm like, no, it's the wrong words. It's the wrong number. But for the most part, just whole lines would just leap right out, preserved exactly, with maybe a little twist in a couple of places. But yeah. Yeah, I understand you have a whole playlist uh, of songs that influence the book. And yeah. can you talk a little bit about the music that influenced the book? Well, this is particularly of late 80s through the early 90s. Mm. This is... I know house music was very popular back then, but this is about the electro-industrial side. The music put out a lot by uh, the Wax Tracks label as well as the gothic uh, movements that were very popular at that time. Uh, there's a little bit of post-punk sneaks its way in there, mm. but that's what I was listening to. Though that is the music that was played in the clubs that I went to dance in. This is the background, the soundtrack, as it were, of my life at that moment. And so I transposed it to the book. Mm. And I, uh, I figured out at the very end, I looked up all the references. There were over 76. Um, not all of them would be recognizable. Some of them were hidden. If you know a song really well, you realize that Oh, that's from this song. A particular line somebody says. But other times it's, this song is playing, here are the lyrics to the song, and I describe the song as it happens. Mm. So it's a combination of both overt and hidden. Good, good. So um, as you're writing it, did you have um, a particular goal in mind of what, the, what you're going to do with it when you published it? Was uh was it more about sales? You're getting me simply getting it out there. What was your goal in, in uh, self publishing it? Well, to a degree, it was simply to get it out of my head. I was yeah. tired of living with these people. Yeah, I was exhausted. I started writing this in 1996, mm -hmm. and off and on, mostly off, but still, it was there from the time I left Chicago until 2017 when it finally came out, and these people are damaged to a degree, more or less. They're all blind to their own problems. And I was tired of living with them. So I was thankful to get it off. Yeah. But I also was, there's, I was seeing something here. Yeah. So I was trying to get that out too. And it gave relief whenever I went to see a concert or a play. I wouldn't have to think to myself, boy, one day I'm going to have a book too. I was able to forgive myself. Mm. I had done it. It's yeah. there. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you were talking a little bit about how 
it's a specific time and place yes. that's being captured uh, in this novel. And uh, what would you say, um, can you go a little bit more into that, the time and place and how it relates to today's time or any yeah. reflection on today's time? When I was living there, all I knew was I was going to go out and I was going to have a great time. I was going to go to these specific bars, Smart Bar, Exit, Neo, Dreamers, Artful Dodger. These are the places that I hung out. I listened to the music that I wanted to listen to. This is what my friends wanted to listen to. It was a great time. Only 20 or so years later have I looked back and realized that this moment in time in Chicago changed music. I had no idea back then. There was a guy by the name of Freddie Knuckles. He was spinning in a club called Warehouse, starting in 1977 up through the early 80s. They used to call it Warehouse music, but that took too long. They changed it to House music. So the genesis of House music was in Chicago during this time. Two guys moved from Denver, Colorado to Chicago. They set up a cool um, record store with all these wild uh, bands, bootlegs, and everybody was talking about this music that they couldn't get, that they didn't hear. So they said, well, let's start a record label. And that's how Wax Tracks Records got started. And Chicago became the center of industrial music during the 80s. Mm. I didn't know all this stuff. All I knew is these were the clubs that I loved. This is what I enjoyed doing. And when I look back on them, like, this is unique. This was the one place in the world that gave birth to both of these styles of music, or at least were centers of them. And this is what we did. These are the clubs we went to. Now it's all over the place. You've got bands, people in Europe, everywhere doing house, trance, um, acid house, industrial, all that stuff is done everywhere. Mm. But at that time, this was just what me and my friends did. And that's what I was trying to capture with it. Yeah. So you mentioned you started in 1996, correct? And then you, how long did it take you, how long was the writing process of this book? Yeah. It went on for years. I have roughly five complete rewrites, including different titles to them. Wow. I don't even remember the names of all of them. <laughs> um, right now it comes in at a hefty 124,000 words, and I know I've cut at least 80,000 words out of it. Okay. So it's gone through convulsions, yeah. like complete reinventions, until I finally just I had to stop. Yeah, there's that saying that you know a, a work of art is never finished; it's simply abandoned. Yeah, <laughs> I said, okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So after this whole process, why did you choose to self-publish? And you went through iUniverse, I believe. iUniverse. Yeah. Yes. You know, I tried going the traditional path, mm. where you have two sets of gatekeepers. You have the um, either the slush pile, where you have some random reader picks it out and maybe gives it to an editor, or you go through the agent. Well, I never made it past the agent. Mm. Like, oh, it sounds great, I love it. And then they say, no, it's just not for us. I'm like, mm. okay, I'm, I'm done with it. And one of the things that I learned when I was going through our universe, because I went the whole package, I said, yes, I'm gonna have the editing done. Mm. And when I went through the developmental edit, I realized that I had completely blown it that I, I did not come close to what I was trying to do. I was like, the book is told from three rotating points of view. It's just one story being told straight through. Some of it's told from Jonathan, some of it from Scott, some of it from Jennifer's point of view. Chronologically, but rotating. Mm. And 
two-thirds of the points of view were just broken, absolutely wrong. I was like, wow, no wonder nobody wanted to publish this thing. It sucked. So I went back and redid it top to bottom. By then, I'd already invested time and uh, money into it. Uh, so I, I'm just going to go through and self-publish like this. One of the advantages with iUniverse is if it sells 500 copies in hard copy, they become my agent, and then they sell at traditional publishing houses oh, good, yeah. as my agent. So that's, yeah, that's one of the It's kind of like a self-published to publish maybe. I don't know. Yes. Like I went to buy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's of. good. Yeah. So um, like, talk, let's talk a little bit more about your writing process. You mentioned a little bit of the facets of it, you know, the rewrites. But uh, the more details into how much time you spent writing and how you um, figure out the drafts, each draft, yeah. Right, so I started, I just blasted straight through it. I just let things happen, scenes would grow, characters would appear, and that's why I ended up cutting out 80,000 words of it, because mm. it went all the wrong places a lot. In the future, I know I'm going to have an outline and at least have an idea of where I'm going before I just follow these blind paths. But once I got that enormous block of text, I could cut it down to a more reasonable amount, I still had to go through. And because I was writing it from three points of view, I wanted it to sound like it had three different points of view. Yeah. So each individual character would have to have their own focus, their own style of speaking, own vocabulary. So once I created the functional unit, I had to go back with a checklist. Okay, Jonathan focuses on passion. He has this sort of vocabulary. These are the type of sentences he speaks in. Scott has a different focus. He's on power and control. He's short sentences. He doesn't have the same vocabulary. Jennifer's... Um, obsessed, or not necessarily obsessed, she views everything in her life through the filter of pop culture, television, um, magazines, movies, everything is a pop culture reference for her. And so I, and she has a different vocabulary, larger than Scott's, but smaller than Jonathan's. So I had to go through and write that whole thing, trying to follow them to make it seem as if you were really reading three books, mm. in a sense. Good, good. So what about, uh, in order to achieve that, do you have any writing rituals? Do you sit down every morning or evening, or what's your routine? When I'm drafting, I like to do it early in the day. Mm -hmm. That's when I'm the crispest. Mm -hmm. Especially after you have a kid and you start going to bed really early and you start falling asleep at 9 o'clock yeah. because you can't help it. But still, the mornings or when I'm at my most crisp. When I'm rewriting, that's a different part of your brain. Mm -hmm. And I can kind of do that in small units. I can rewrite a paragraph now, and then two hours later come back and rewrite the other three paragraphs on that page because I'm just fixing things. So the drafting, blocks of time, best in the morning. Rewriting, I still like to have blocks of time, but I can break it up throughout the day. It's not as... Ritual, but always with this book in particular, I had exactly the same soundtrack playing. Mm. It's not the one that, from the book because there's only 76 songs mentioned in it. I have a 
soundtrack of about 500 songs. Uh-huh. And I always played that same playlist, randomized, to put me in the mood. These are songs, a lot of them, that I would listen to in Chicago at that time. Or if I had heard of the band, I would have listened to. Mm. It's interesting that you randomized it, because then it seems like that would create some kind of serendipity or some kind of new idea that maybe, um, you know, might jostle what you were going for, something new, some random song would play, and you change your idea. So, like, how do you keep track of all these uh, sudden ideas? Or, or, you know, as you're saying about going down blind alleys, you know, that was, when I started writing it, it was uh, handwritten first, then typed over into a Word document. Mm-hmm. I now write in Scrivener, which is a program designed not only for writing, but for collecting and organizing all your ideas and every single possible reference you could possibly have and have it in the same program so you're not jumping everywhere. When I was writing this one, it was harder. Mm. I would send emails to myself. Um, I would make maybe some uh, voice memos. Of course, those are hard because you kind of forget that you made them. Yeah. Yeah. It was chaotic. (laughs) Now that I have everything in Scrivener, it's always in there. I still have to look for it maybe, but I know it's in the software. I know I keep a collection and it's all on this page. That's how I do it now. So like then chaos. (laughs) <laughs> lost some ideas now less chaotic mm. fewer lost ideas good good so you mentioned a little bit about the struggles you know or the adaptation you made in becoming a father um, you know how do you uh, how do you like balance this suppose the cliche is always that writers are solitary and they're always going into their own thoughts <laughs> and this a solitary cave philosophy and uh, how do you balance that life but, you know when you write, at least when I write, I cannot have people around me yeah. talking to me. It cannot happen. If somebody talks to me, it'll end up in my dialogue. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's not what I was thinking about. I have my little do not disturb writer at work sign hanging right here. And it's like, yeah. don't mess with me when I'm writing. When I'm rewriting, editing, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit softer because I'm not, I don't have to be there. Mm. But when I was writing these videos, I had to step inside the brains of people who I may not even like that much, but they're the character, and I have to be this person in this other place. I can't have distractions. So it's solitary in that way, but it's Mm. units a little bit now. And early in the morning, I'll let them sleep in. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good. So now, as we are to getting the dialogue going, so you meet readers at your book signings, and... uh... How do you uh, how do you how do you find them responding or conventions or similar events? How do you meet them and how do they respond to the work? You know, a lot of times I haven't had a lot of opportunity to meet people in large groups. I've had a lot of oh. individual uh, one-on-ones, and in that sense, the feedback has generally been like, "Yeah, I, I remember that. This is just you know, you've brought me back to a place where I was at one point in time." Um, and that makes me feel like, okay, great, I did what I was supposed to do, but it's also, what, did you, what was it like for you then? Because mm. that keeps it open, because I want to also use this as a platform to kind of expand talking about that time. Mm. 
adding to it because you know I, I cut out a lot of text. Well, I'd like to offer this. Like this chapter, I got cut out. There's just no room for it. You remember this here, yeah. and it it allows me to like introduce people to let's say maybe bars or places they never went to. Those sorts of ideas. Oh, really good. So why don't we take a moment to listen to a little bit from the the work itself, and then we'll come back to do more uh, questions and such. Okay. So why don't you read a, a portion of the book for the audience? Okay. Yeah. I, like I said, it's written from three different points of view, so it's, it's a little difficult for me to, own, to get all of them in here. But I'm going to do a little sample here that also illustrates how the music infiltrated the writing itself. At this point in time, it's fairly early in the book from Jonathan's point of view, and nothing's working out. Things have gotten very bad. And um, he's realizing that um, had it remained like this, I would have gone out at the end of a leather belt I tied around a chandelier, kicking at the smoke-filled air. Though I did not know it, at that very moment my deliverance was dressing herself for a party I had decided I could not bear to attend. I shuddered to think of it. I had almost stayed home and watched something on TV with Scott. I had everything, every reason not to go. I would avoid having to face people who knew I didn't have a band anymore and avoid admitting that I was now a cubicle auton, that I wasn't who they thought they knew. I wasn't the person I thought I knew. After dinner, I went out for cigarettes and on the way back home, for reasons I still wonder at, I turned left on Neal Avenue and walked the three blocks to that party and straight into a different life. The party was on the third floor apartment, and once inside, the smells of cigarette, kef, and incense, the sounds of the rhythmics, love is a stranger, and the sights of people I used to hang with jarred me, as if I'd walked into a glass wall. I took a few moments to get my bearings and find out that the drinks were over in the kitchen. Down the hall, somebody told me. So this is a moment where he's realizing that he's bottomed out and is on the cusp of his new life. doesn't know it quite yet. And the things I wanted to point out, the music, there's the obvious one where he says, the sounds and the rhythmics, love is a stranger playing, right? Which is about how you're falling in love is you get whisked away and it's like religion. He's about ready to meet his lover. Mm. All right, so that was there. But the earlier part here, I would have gone out at the end of a leather belt tied around the chandelier, kicking at the smoke-filled air. Smoke-filled air is an adaptation of a line from the Boomtown Rats song, Diamond Smile, where she goes up, ties a lame belt around the chandelier and goes out kicking at the perfume there. She actually commits suicide. So this is a line, one of those lines that just jumped right in. I was mm. just writing along. All of a sudden, this is a song I used to listen to when I was in high school. Mm. This is from 70, whatever it was. It just jumped into my head. I, I couldn't help it. Write that out. And The Lover is a Stranger is, is sort of a, I, I guess, symbolism, whatever. It would be the type of song. It's like, hey, guys, if you know the song, you know what's going to happen. Yeah, oh, interesting. A little foreshadowing meme, right? Yeah. yeah. That's interesting, that's interesting. Those people who know the song. So now, does this inspire in you, like, more and more of a passion to, to be in a band, or is this something that you've always kept, um, 
you know, keeping that, it seems the tension where you're like, maybe I should go write for a band or go be in a band. I don't know. You know, no, I, I, I did it. I was really happy to be involved with it. Uh huh. But I don't know. I, I can't sing. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent certain of my lyric writing ability. Okay. Right. Although there is some of this um, all instrumental house trance stuff that's kind of intriguing, but then I'd have to learn a new technology. Oh uh, yeah. And whether or not my wife and everything <laughs> tolerate that, I've got other books yeah. that I want to get done. So it's like uh, if I had like eight extra hours a day, maybe. But yeah. So what about all the writers? Like, what, what writers do you like to read? Or what has had a strong influence on your writing? Well, that's, <laughs> that was something that... This book is in dialogue with not only these 40 bands, 40-odd bands. Some of them are mentioned twice, which is why there's 76 references. Uh-huh. But it is specifically... The structure is taken from Lawrence Darrell's uh, the Alexandria Quartet, where he wrote uh, three books that tell exactly the same story. One's from a first-person point of view. Guy writes the book, hands it to another person who tells his own version from the first point of view of exactly the same events, and they don't match up. The third version, all the characters that were I, first person, are turned into he's or she's. Okay? And then the final book of the quartet is a sequel to all three of the earlier siblings at the same time. I try to recreate that in here in the sense that it's three individual I points of view, where each person then turns the other I narrators into a he or a she. And so it's constantly walking around like this in order to reveal, not that things are different, but the reason why things happen are different, that people aren't who they tell themselves they are, nor are they who other people believe them. Sort of the eye of the first-person subjective narrative meets the he or she of the objective third-person narrative. And there's constant tension. They don't match. So that's one definite place where it's in dialogue. Then there's uh, Armies of the Night by Norman Mailer, who compared his own version of the March on Washington with newspaper reports and says they don't agree with each other. Who's right? I'm leaving it up to the reader to figure out. So there are articles in here that talk about looking at the band from the outside. Which one is right? Mm -hmm. What they own from or not? So just unpack what you're saying just now. So in other words, what you're saying is the perspectives are changing because when you're saying about the um, changing the pronouns or changing the perspectives... And then it kind of questions the reliability of the narrators, or is it some yeah. other target? Is that the target? Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. The, the subtitle that I wish I would have thought of at the time before I published it, but hadn't, was that we're all just misunderstood characters in the stories other people tell themselves. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And we t narrate a story about ourselves. Oh, I'm yeah. like this, I'm this type of person, etc. And other people tell stories about us that don't agree, oh, yeah. which is right. Well, there's a, a scene very late in the book where Jennifer comes to realize that you know, who we really are hangs someplace between all the stories suspended in the contradictions. And that's 
sort of that's the deeper story in the book. I mean, it's definitely about the band. Do mm. they make it? Do they not? How hard is it? What happens? But there's definitely this, who, who are we, really? Yeah, speaking of which, it seems like uh, the characters are inspired by people. Is that true? And uh, what, can you talk a little bit about how the main characters were inspired by someone? To a degree, they were, uh, the very, very first version of this book was sort of an apology. I wanted to explain why I had made certain decisions at a certain point in time in my life. And then I realized that nobody on earth except for me would be interested in that. <laughs> so I abandoned that idea on my second draft, kind of dumped everything, but I kept the time and place. So the characters, uh, some of the minor characters are definitely sort of amalgams of people who I knew. The three main characters, I sort of chipped different parts of myself Mm -hmm. into three and then added aspects of some people who I knew at that time to them. Mm. Interesting, interesting. Right, so it's multiple parts of who I am and yet they really are other people too. Mm. I, guess, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I was splitting of perspectives and also taking on certain attributes of mm -hmm. certain people and kind of fleshing out those specific attributes I guess you would say, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, good, good. So, um, is it, would you say that there's one keystone in the book? Like, is there a very important line or scene that helps understand the whole? Yeah, the single most important sentence in the entire book is when um, Jennifer, this is late in the book, she's with a friend, and there was a, a, a big realization, revelation about what happened to another friend of theirs, and the two, they're driving... And um, I actually I have it here. I can read yeah, it. Yeah, let me just let's do another reading. Yeah, it's, it's good, good. Okay. Let me make sure. Okay, so starts off with here. Um, Chris is the friend. Jennifer's the point of view character, and they're referring to a friend, Charlene. And it says that. That was so weak, I say, so not her. It's Jennifer speaking, referring to their friend Charlene. Not, the, uh, not her that we knew, Chris says. Jonathan's not who I thought either. I watched the dust skyline. Tall pillars of darkness speckled with lights passed slowly behind one another. How about you? Are you who you say you are? Do I think you are? I think I am, as much as I can be. I don't know what to believe anymore. About anyone. Everyone's always telling stories about each other, including stories about themselves. None of the stories are the same, or even completely true. It's like we're all a bunch of contradictory stories, none of which is completely true or totally wrong. Who we really are hangs someplace between the stories, suspended in the contradictions. But that's the end of that piece here before they go on to a, a bar where they find out yet further revelations about who people really are and everything becomes rock. Interesting, interesting. So um, let's talk a little bit more about the musics now. Uh, if I were to select two or three songs I want to play during the, for the audience to listen in on uh, for the music. So we'll, we can talk more, but we'll, if you could kind of riff off of what specific songs you think are the keystones to. One is Isolation. 
by Joy Division, uh -huh. which is actually where the title comes from. Okay. There's a line in the story where um, he's, in, he's singing about how people are kind of about to get him, and he has uh, created a blindness touching perfection, but it hurts just like anything else. All right, so that's where that comes from. And there's also another reference into it where um, Jonathan says, I, I'm, I'm ashamed of who I've become, which is also from the song Isolation. So that, that's very important there. There's a, another song that has the uh, line that uh, life is short, love is always over in the morning. And that is said <laughs> multiple times throughout the book. Uh, that's the Sisters of Mercy. Um, the Temple of Love. There we go. Yeah, I knew I would forget that. Um, so those are definitely key songs to understanding this. Joy Division, the transmission comes up again um, as the basis of one of the songs that Jonathan ends up writing. That's what inspired it. I kind of cribbed the music from it. But also the idea in it talks about how um, we're always multiple different people to each other. Mm. And so it wraps the ideas that break up the book into the song based on transmission. And they're dancing in the club, and it's hot and sweaty, and we love it down here, and it's a magical place. So those those would be definitely, and probably Blue Monday. Blue Monday, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And who who was the was oh, is a new order? New order. Um, yeah. yeah, Ian uh, Curtis, the lead singer of uh, Joy Division, committed suicide on the eve of their U.S. tour, and the band reformed as New Order, mm -hmm. and they went on to do. They're still together. Oh, good, good. So now, as far as like your uh, inspirations, you've talked a lot about music and such, mm -hmm. and the different kind of music ways in which. Um, Music inspires you. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit more about like the how, like when listening to music, how it inspires you? A little bit more about um, you know how these inspirational inspirational moments gets you to write. And was that always your intention to become a writer? Or you know, for a long time, um, I think it was in, right when I was graduating high school. Mm. I was going to go to college, and I was thinking about being a writer. I, I like. I read some philosophy and some H.P. Lovecraft. I was kind of in love with him, um, his writing. And I went off to do that and got distracted. And it took me a while, but then I came back to writing. I said, you know what? This is really what I want to do. Originally, I was going to be a fantasy, particularly swords and sorcery, um, epic fantasy, which I might end up getting back to. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. But... That was the genesis of that. Now, the music, music has always been extremely important to me, and I didn't realize how until I was writing this book, and I realized whole sentences and lines just sprung out of my head, fully formed as lyrics that I listened to decades before, often enough that I couldn't forget them. Mm. So there's that. There's also just being a mood. Yeah. Certain music puts you in the space and you know this is I'm going to write done so all of that good good so um, why don't we circle back a little bit about your own 
uh, story. I was reading a little bit about your story from the pre-materials uh, about mm -hmm. your own story of how you grew up, and uh, it's, such an, it's such a fascinating story with all the different things that are happening in your life and how it's built up, perhaps, to a writing career. It seems like it invites that, such a rich life as it invites a, a chance to sit down and, and work out all those different ideas, you know. Really? Talk a little bit about where you were born and how you grew up. Yeah, it's a, a lot of this is complete accident, of course. I didn't yeah. choose who I was being born to. But my father, um, my parents had me when I was, they were 19. My dad had to pay for college somehow, went ROTC, which meant I grew up as an army brat. Mm. Okay, anybody who doesn't know that, that means I'm a child of an officer. Or actually just a member of the U.S. military. Yeah. That means I moved everywhere. Um, I believe I was moved. 13 times by the time I was nine years old, I think it's a total, including uh, from Columbus, Ohio to Tennessee. Uh, my father was stationed at Fort Campbell, then to uh, Frankfurt and Stuttgart in what was then West Germany. Moved back to Ohio, uh, moved around in Ohio, ended up moving to Chicago, of course, 1988 there. From then, I moved to Mexico City, and then I moved to New York City to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. So there was just, you know, always picking up and going, and that's just the way I lived. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. So what would you say is the core philosophy or core ideas that you're trying to communicate? You got a little bit into it mm -hmm. with the different perspectives and learn, understanding, you know, ourselves as individuals and also as part yes. of other people's um, continuum or story. How would you, you know, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I kind of got out, restating what I got out of hearing back what I got out of what you were saying. Right. I mean, there's a, a lot of, like, me being melded with other people. That was to create characters for the book. But a lot of the book itself is going after the idea of how we form an identity. Mm. And if the stories we tell ourselves aren't entirely true, nor are the stories other people tell about themselves or about me, and everything is slightly off... How is it that anybody can become friends? How can anybody become lovers? How does anything ever get done? When everything is just kind of slightly wrong and off, how does it work? How is this possible? And it does, of course. Maybe we're acting in ways that we think we know. It's actually some other reason, but it gets us to where we're going. Perhaps by accident, perhaps more by design. Yeah, it speaks to me. I think that it speaks to the themes of the show as well. It's like the idea of finding truth and trying to find that holy grail of truth if there is one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if there is, if there's one ultimate truth or if there are individual truths. Yeah. And how you negotiate that and how you find power within discovering our truth or discovering our personal truths, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's a very life's know, journey, yeah. Huh? It's been a long time since we've had received knowledge and it's been absolute and unquestionable a long, long time. <laughs> uh, so we're all, yes, we all have to create our own truths, but yet the only way we can communicate and do anything together is to share something. Yeah. And how does that work? There's a lot of tensions. I mean, you, you can even see some of the tensions spilling out in contemporary politics. Yeah. Particularly, all share truths, but they're not. And then as individuals, how do we do this and how do we negotiate got a family. Am I who I really am to her? My wife? Is she really it to me? And there's always constant tension. But you somehow, and that's part of the reason why I write, 
somehow you figure out how to make this work. You find some sort of shared vocabulary, whether it can be symbolic, um, ideas that you share that are mostly the same. But again, it's going to be like a Venn diagram. Yeah. And hopefully most of it is the same. Yeah. But there's going to be a little bit on the edges that's going to be a little bit different for everybody. But the larger the shared circle, the better you can do things together and communicate. Very good. Thank you so much. I think that's a good place to end the interview. And then we're going to be playing some more songs and music from the, from the inspi- that inspired the book, as well as uh, some other uh, uh, music. Thanks so much. This ends the interview portion of the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. You can follow me on Facebook at VJR Nathan Poet and on Twitter at Truth to Power Show with the number two. If you'd like to be a guest on Truth to Power Show, please write to Truth to Power Show at gmail.com and we'll definitely uh, consider putting you on the guest list. Um, coming up is going to be the broadcast. Coming up, if you're listening, on Thursday at 9 a.m. when we air at RadioForBrooklyn.com or their app, Radio for Brooklyn app. Uh, the broadcast coming up afterwards at 10 a.m. It's every week at 10 a.m. Uh, investigative journalist, blogger, and broadcaster Brad Friedman's investigative interviews, uh, analysis, and commentary as ripped from the pages of the Brad blog. Today's covers today's current events, if they matter, and the rest of the wor- rest of the stuff we have to live with. So please tune in for that on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Now I'll read from Towards the Psychology of Being by Abraham H. Maslow. This is from the seventh chapter, Peak Experiences as Acute Identity Experiences. As we seek for definitions of identity, we must remember that these definitions and concepts are not now existing in some hidden place, waiting patiently for us to find them. Only partly do we discover them. Partly also we create them. Partly, identity is whatever we say it is. Prior to this, and of course, um, should come our sensitivity and receptivity to the various meanings the word already has, the word of identity. As once we find the various authors use the word for different kinds of data, different operations. And then, of course, you must find out something of these operations in order to understand just what the author means when he uses the word. It means something different for various therapists, for sociologists, for self psychologists, for child psychologists, etc. Even though for all these people, there is also some similarity and overlap of meaning. Perhaps the celebrity is what identity means today. I have another operation to report on peak experiences in which the identity has various real, sensible, and useful meanings. But no claim is made that these are the true meanings of identity, only that we have another angle. Since my feeling is that people in peak experiences are most mostly their identities, closest to their real selves, most idiosyncratic. It would seem that this is an especially important source of clean and contaminated data. Invention is reduced to a minimum, and discovery increased to a maximum. It would be apparent to the reader that all these separate characteristics following are not really separate at all, but partake in each each other in various ways. They overlap, saying the same thing in different ways, having the same meaning, in a metaphorical sense. The reader is interested in the theory of holistic analysis in contrast to atomistic or inductive um, analysis. I shall be describing in a holistic way, not by splitting identity, a 
apart in some quite separate components which are mutually exclusive, but rather by turning it over and over in my hands and gazing at the different facets as a connoisseur contemplates a fine painting, seeing it now this organization as a whole, now and that, each aspect discussed can be considered a partial explanation of each of the other aspects. So let's consider. The person in the peak experience feels more integrated, unified, whole, all of a piece. Then at other times, he also looks to the observer more integrated in various ways, less split, less dissociated, less fighting against himself, more at peace with himself, less split between experiencing self and observing self, more one-pointed, more harmoniously organized, more efficiently organized with all of his parts functioning very nicely with each other, more synergetic with internal, less internal friction, etc. Other aspects of integration and conditions upon which it is rests are discussed below. As he gets more purely and singly himself, he is able to fuse with this world and what is formerly not self. For example, the, the lovers come closer to forming a unit rather than two people. The I-Thou monism becomes more possible. The creator becomes one with his work being created. The mother feels one with her child. The appreciator becomes the music and he becomes him or the painting of the dance or the astronomer out there with the stars rather than the separateness across the abyss and other separateness to the telescopic keyhole. That is, the greatest attainment of identity, autonomy, or selfhood is itself simultaneously transcending of itself, a going beyond and above selfhood. The person can then become relatively egoless. So this is a sampling from that book, and we're going to be kind of thinking about that in the context of a time and place in which we exist, and yet we are transcending that time and place. So to end off, we're going to be listening to some music from Joy Division, Love Will Tear Us Apart, and The Book of Love, Pretty Boys and Pretty Girls. Please enjoy. Thank you.